Genesis 35. Well, today was the first real official day. Well, maybe it was earlier this week, but uh, the first day that football got started as far as professional football. But, you know, it's still baseball season. And uh, uh, anyone who knows baseball knows the occasional slumps that are part of the game. You know, those uh, players in professional baseball play a lot of games during a season, and uh, occasionally they get into a slump, maybe a, a batting slump where they can't hit the ball, uh, and uh, so they kind of get in a slump. Uh, the pitchers sometimes get in a slump. They can't get the ball across the plate. Uh, and the New York Mets, of course, at one time had a very uh, notorious uh, uh history of being inept and not very good team. Uh, during one especially bad time, the Mets manager, you remember him, Casey Stengel, uh, he was before my time, but some of you guys remember him. Um, he got a cake for his birthday. Someone asked him why uh, Marv Thornberry, the first baseman, hadn't received a cake for his birthday, and Casey said, uh, we're afraid he might drop it. You know, uh, there's always uh, times when uh, things just don't go quite so well. And uh, there are times, even in our Christian lives, we think we kind of, uh, we get in a slump. If you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, you've gone through those spiritual times of a spiritual slump, when the Lord seems to be distant from you. You kind of hit a plateau, uh, and you seem to be stuck. Usually you're not aware of it right away. But at some point, you realize you aren't as excited about the Lord as you used to be. Uh, you're still going through the motions. Yes, you're reading your Bibles, you're praying, you're serving, uh, but you've lost your first love. And it's easy for that to happen, especially if you've been a Christian for uh, a number of years. Maybe you've gotten to the point some time or another that you're burned out from serving. Maybe there's uh, the idea that, well, you're always giving out, but uh, uh, not adequately taking in. And it seems to be that the air is slowly leaking out of the spiritual tires, and you realize you're in a spiritual slump. Well, Jacob, we find, was there. Thirty years before the Lord had met Jacob in a very special place called Bethel. And as he fled from his angry brother... Uh, he made a vow that if the Lord brought him back safely to the land of Canaan, then God would be his God. Well, God kept his part of the deal. Jacob had prospered financially under Laban. And in spite of Laban's greed and deception, uh, Jacob had been blessed with 11 sons and a daughter. And after wrestling into, uh, him into submission at Penel. The, the Lord had protected him in his dreaded meeting with Esau and brought him safely back to Canaan. But Jacob stopped short of returning to Bethel. Bethel was the place of his vow, his promise to God. And whether it was continuing fear of Esau or attraction to the good life at Shechem or other factors, we cannot be really sure 
But Jacob settled short of the place where God wanted him to be. It wasn't that he abandoned God during those ten or so years. Uh, We're told in chapter 33 and verse 20 that he erected an altar there. But even though he went through the outward motions, the reality of Bethel and Peniel uh, had faded. Jacob went through a decade of spiritual slump, which climaxed, of course, in our uh, looking at the last uh, chapter, the rape of Dinah and the terrible slaughter of the Shechemites by his sons. Now, the trick is not to get into a slump. Uh, you say, that's easy to say. You know, uh, most of us have done, have gotten into slumps without much trouble. We, uh, but the trick, though, is, is not getting in, but the trick is getting out. How do you start growing again? How do you start getting going for God? How do you get going uh, with your love for Him and your service with Him with excitement and, and, and uh, inc- uh, uh, desire to, to please Him and to, uh, to do all you can to grow in the Lord? Well, we get out of a spiritual slump basically by responding obediently to His Word. God spoke and Jacob responded obediently. And we're going to just quickly look at four facets to Jacob's obedience, which we can apply to our lives personally here tonight. First of all, we need to obey God's present commands. Obey God's present commands. Now, chapter 35 and verse 1 ought to encourage anyone that's in a spiritual slump. After the terrible events of chapter 34, you could expect the Lord to say, Jacob, you know, that's it. I've had it. You and your family are just messed up. In fact, you're messed up and you've messed up too often, and I'm just going to find someone else to be my covenant people. But notice what the Lord says to Jacob in verse 1. And God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleddest from the face of Esau thy brother. I think that's encouraging. God wants us to come back to him and to grow even after maybe 10 years, like it was for Jacob, 10 years, a decade of spiritual slump, even after a disaster like Genesis chapter 34, like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, the Lord is looking for his straying children to return to him, and he always welcomes them back, and he does so with open arms. His grace should motivate us to respond obediently to him. And perhaps you're thinking, well, it's great that God spoke to Jacob, but God hasn't spoke to me. But wait a minute, he has. He has. You need to first bow your heart before him, confess your spiritual apathy, and then open your Bible and ask him to speak to you from his word and show you what to do. And then do what Jacob did, and that is obey. Now one way you'll know that the Lord has spoken to you is that you'll have an 
immediate sense of the need for personal and family cleansing. You'll be aware that there are things that you've allowed into your life that have to go because they are not pleasing to God. And as soon as God told Jacob to go back to Bethel, he had to do some spiritual house cleaning. Notice verse 2, it says, Then Jacob said to his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean, and change your garments. God didn't have to tell him to get rid of his idols. Jacob knew that if he was going to meet with God, there had to be a cleansing. He couldn't let his family haul their idols to Bethel. And I don't think he had a garage sale, by the way. It's going to get rid of them. Now here's the number one family on the face of earth as far as God's dealing go, dealings go. And the Lord has been working with Jacob for over 30 years and with his father and his grandfather before him. And yet here we discover that his family is loaded with idols and earrings that had some sort of idolatrous significance. We see that in verse uh, four, and they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hand and all the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was at Shechem. Remember, Rachel had stolen her father's household gods, and the rest of the family apparently had more of their own, and probably they added a few more as they looted Shechem. Jacob had known about it, but he kind of just let it ride for the time being. And when God told him to return to Bethel, he confronted his family's sin. And for the first time, we see Jacob taking the proper leadership in his family. You know, it's easy for us to sit here this evening and to think, well, that doesn't apply to me because I don't have any idols at my house. It's easy to say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm certainly not a pagan. But we're naive if we assume we're not susceptible to idolatry. Idols aren't just little statues you bow down to. An idol is anything that takes its place, uh, takes place of God in your life and blocks you from growing in the Lord and doing His will. Career success can be an idol, become an idol. Now, we certainly would want to be successful in our, in our jobs, whatever job we've been called to, but you know that career success can become an idol. And even if that career is a Christian ministry, everything else, even the family, is subordinated to that goal. Some worship personal fulfillment. We try to use God to make us happy and to use ministry to make us happy rather than to know and serve God out of a love for Him, even when it's difficult. For some, the idol is the pursuit of leisure. It's easy to get lazy. It's easy to just sleep in. Watch not a little TV, but a lot of TV. 
waste time on things that really don't matter. And we end up wasting a lot of precious time that God has entrusted to us. It's easy to sit here and to think tonight, well, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. Boy, pastor is speaking directly to him. He's got his number. But each of us needs to take the log out of our own eyes and the most stubborn idol we have is to get rid of its of is the, to get rid of is the, is self in all of its manifestations. There are three things I think in the process here of rooting out our idols. Look again at verse two. Number one, put away your strange gods. We need to identify and put away anything that hinders us from drawing near to God. Secondly, we need to be clean. It says, be clean. Cleanse, purify yourself by confessing your sin and appropriating God's forgiveness. And then thirdly, the third one is change your garments. That is, we need to change our outward behavior. Now, that usually involves changing maybe our schedule sometimes. Change your garments. You know, the way to get out of the spiritual slump is to respond to His grace and obey what God is telling you to do right now. Notice, secondly, another way to get out of the spiritual slump is to fulfill your past commitments. Fulfill your past commitments. God had begun with Jacob 30 years before at Bethel where he had made some commitments to the Lord. Uh, They were immature commitments in many ways because Jacob had been bargaining with God and we should never bargain with God, but Jacob had promised God that if he would provide for him and bring him back safely, he would let God be his God. He would set up Bethel as God's house and he would give his tithe to God. And although immature, God took Jacob's commitments and he began to work with him. He wanted Jacob's obedience and he wanted his worship. So here the Lord doesn't mention the house or the 10%. He commands Jacob to return to Bethel and fulfill his commitment to worship. Jacob had to return to his original commitment to the Lord. Now, most of us have made commitments to the Lord at some time in our lives, usually early in our relationship with Him. Maybe we made a commitment in a church service, or maybe at camp. And we had a real zeal, a real joy in knowing and serving the Savior back in those days, and it's good to kind of dust those commitments off. I think it's good sometimes to write them down, maybe in the flyleaf of your Bible, and then look at them every once in a while. Remember what God, what you promised God. Go back to uh, the place spiritually where God met you. Now, I think it's good for us to do that in marriage every once in a while, don't you? It's wonderful when you first fall in love. Remember how you felt? toward your spouse before she was your spouse or he was your spouse? Remember that romantic moment when you to- uh, she told you that she'd marry you? 
Well, that was wonderful. There isn't anybody who maintains those intense feelings through the years of marriage. Sometimes when marriage has grown a bit stale, it's good to go back, either in our minds or perhaps even as a couple to the very spot or uh, just to talk about those commitments again, to renew the early commitments. And it's the same spiritually. You've got to rekindle the love you used to have for God. Get alone with Him. Tell Him that you love Him. Clean out the junk of your, in your life that has gotten you off track. Think about the things you've promised to do for Him and recommit yourself to do them now by His grace. And that leads us to a third factor in shaking off a spiritual slump, and that is remember God's past and continuing compassion. Remember God's past and continuing compassion. Now much of this chapter focuses on God's past and continuing mercies to Jacob. God's past mercy in protecting him from Esau was mentioned three times. It was mentioned in verse 1, and then again in verse 3, and then in verse 7. It says in verse 7, He built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. The Lord's merciful uh, protection of Jacob's family from vengeance for the slaughtering the Shechemites by sending a terror on the Canaanites there in verse 5. It says, And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. God was protecting them. When the Lord appears to Jacob again at Bethel, he doesn't say much new, except that the king shall come forth from him. Look at down at verse 10. It says, And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall be not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And be, he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Really, that's nothing new. Everything else uh, had been revealed uh, uh, before. The Lord reconfirms His new name. God reveals to him uh, His name, God's name, El Shaddai, God Almighty. That wasn't new. Abraham and Isaac had known God by that name. And it pointed Jacob toward the fact that God was sufficient for all of his needs as well. The Lord goes back to remind Jacob that he will keep his promises that he gave years before to multiply Jacob's descendants and give them the land. God, After God leaves, Jacob does the same thing he did 30 years before. He sets up a pillar and pours out an offering on it. Even the list of Jacob's 12 sons fits the context here as a reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. As the heads of the 12 future uh, tribes of the nation, they are like the down payment of God's promises. And Jacob knelt before God at Bethel, and this time he was not alone, but he was with a great company, and how could he help but thank God for his abundant compassion? You know, sometimes we think that to get out of a spiritual slump, we've got to discover some new spiritual truth. 
Lord, give me something new. No, that's not really what we need. It's very seldom the case that we need something new. Usually all we need is to be reminded of the old truths that we already know. We need to remember God's past and continuing mercies toward us in Christ. We need to recall that in spite of our sin and our spiritual dullness, the Lord is faithful that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's one reason frequent observance of the Lord's Supper is so important. I sometimes hear Christians say, you know, it becomes so commonplace, the Lord's Supper, and it, it just kind of loses its meaning. Now, I understand that any spiritual discipline can become commonplace, can lose its significance if we let it. Even daily prayer and Bible reading aren't always that exciting, are they? Going to church every week gets old. But you know, we need frequent reminders of the simple truth of God's mercy toward us in Christ. Paul's motivation to live for Christ was the fact that the Son of God loved him and delivered himself for him. And so to get out of a spiritual slump, we need to obey God's present commands. We need to fulfill our past commitments. And then we need to remember God's continuing compassion. There's one more. It's a fourth element, and that is trust God with your present concerns. Trust God with your present concerns. God had spoken to Jacob ten years before at Peniel, but not since, as far as the text reveals to us, during that time Jacob had become comfortable in his partial obedience at Shechem. And then, of course, the tragedies of chapter 34 and his daughter's rape and his son's bloody revenge took Jacob out of his complacency and suddenly he was ready to listen and God spoke again. In the verse 1, the Lord brings to Jacob's mind how he appeared to him when he fled from Esau. In verse 3, Jacob refers to the time that time is a day of distress, and it often takes a day of distress to get our attention. So we'll snap out of our spiritual slump. But then we mistakenly think that since we've turned over or turned the, the corner and we're now obeying God, that, well, uh, that He will give to us or that He even owes us a trouble-free life. But obedience to God doesn't mean that He will reward us with a life that's free from trials. It often, it's often the trials that keep us clinging to Him. So we don't fall back into another slump. It's significant that this chapter, which records Jacob's spiritual recovery, there's no less than four tragedies which bring sorrow into his life. You think, well, since he's obeying God, everything's going to be good now, right? Well, there's four tragedies. The first one we find in verse 8, the death of Deborah, Rebekah's nurse. It says there in verse 8, but Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel under an oak, and the name of it was called Alan Bakthu. She was only mentioned 
before, not by name, but once before when she left Haran with Rebekah, and she was going, uh, uh, Rebekah was going to marry Isaac back in chapter 24. And if she had cared for Rebekah as an infant, uh, well, she would be probably uh, pretty old by now, maybe about 70 or 100, excuse me, 170. 70, 170, you know. Um, it's not revealed when she joined Jacob's company, but her presence probably indicates that Rebekah had died sometime during Jacob's years in Haran, and as close as he was to his mother, the death of her beloved nurse would have been tough for Jacob. The name given to Deborah's burial place there is... Uh, a name which means the oak of weeping. And it shows his grief. The oak of weeping. Now there's another sorrow, and that's found in verses 16 through 20. The sorrow that hit Jacob was the greatest of his life. His beloved Rachel died in childbirth. We find in verse 16, and they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephraim. Ephraim and Rachel travailed and she was, had hard labor and it came to pass when she was in hard labor she, uh, and that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, for she died, that he called his name Benoni, Benoni but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way of Ephrath which is Bethlehem. Jacob's journey from Bethel toward Hebron was probably not a violation of God's command, which he said had to stay in Bethel long enough to fulfill your vows, but, uh, but we also see here the command that was given in verse 3. But Jacob loved Rachel. Remember, he had loved her at first sight. He had worked seven years for her, and then he, when he got cheated with Leah, he worked seven more years. And although his grief is passed over in Genesis 35, it's revealed about 40 years later when Jacob, on his deathbed, very poignantly recalls in chapter 48 and verse 7, When I came from Pandam, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan, in the way and I buried her there in the way of Ephrath. This was a great sorrow. You'd say, well, with these kind of tragedies and sorrows, I'd go into a spiritual slump again. No, God brings them to Jacob to keep him out of that spiritual slump. Jacob's third sorrow is mentioned on the heels of Rachel's death. Reuben, his firstborn, committed incest with Rachel's maid Bilhah, that is Jacob's concubine, and this was probably Reuben's attempt to grab the family inheritance for himself, much as Absalom in his rebellion publicly went into David's concubines, and Adonijah later attempted to usurp power from his brother Solomon. Same scheme. But Reuben's sin must have been very hurtful for Jacob. And then there's one other sorrow that we find in this chapter, and that is the death of his father, Isaac. Now, as you would look at this 
particular passage down in the end of the chapter here. It says, And Jacob came unto Isaac his father, unto Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, which where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac were a hundred and fourscore years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Just a casual reading would make us to think that Jacob arrived just before Isaac's death, but from other chronological choices or notices in Genesis, we learn that Jacob lived in Hebron with Isaac about 12 years before Isaac died. But Isaac's death is presented here to wrap up this part of Jacob's history. It was another sorrow for Jacob as another link with the past was removed. And while the text doesn't develop it in each situation, there are hints here that Jacob bore these trials with renewed trust in God. His renaming of Benjamin in spite of Rachel's death seems to have been an act of faith. She had named him uh, Benoni. Benoni means son of sorrow. But through his tears, Jacob named him son of my right hand, Benjamin. Son of my right hand. There are two pillars in this chapter. The first at Bethel where he poured out his offering in verse 14 and the second at Rachel's grave in verse 20. And they seem to be linked as monuments of growth. The first signifying Jacob's thankfulness for God's faithfulness. The second, his faith in God's promise in spite of his loss. And Jacob's faith may be hinted at when the text says, And Israel journeyed, in verse 21, And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. It's the using of his new name. We find uh, his new name is used, the name of strength. At first glance, you would think that uh, Jacob's silence in response to Reuben's sin was another example of his passivity. But again, the text states in verse 22, And Israel heard. It seems to be a hint that he handled the shocking news and the new strength that he had in God. He waited until the final blessings of his sons to deal with it. We find that in chapter 49, but when he did deal with it, he did it so by depriving Reuben of his birthright. Now the point is that coming out of a spiritual slump doesn't mean that life is going to be rosy and everything's going to be good. Obedience does not mean a trouble-free life. But the inevitable trials that God uses to shake us out of the spiritual indifference and to keep us trusting Him, we have the God of Jacob, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Significant that chapter 34, with all of its sin, you know, you won't find God mentioned there at all. But in chapter 35... God's name appears 11 times, plus 12 more times in the names Israel, Bethel, and El Bethel, and El Shaddai. Trials can make, either make us self-focused, and we can begin to say, oh, poor me, I'm going through such difficult times. 
don't you feel sorry for me? And we can get all, you know, self-focused on our own, uh, have our own little pity parties. Or it can cause us to be God-focused. If we allow the trials to help us put God back in the rightful center of our lives, we'll recover from that slump, just as Jacob did. There's an old rabbinical legend about a man named Simon who lived near Krakow, Poland. Simon repeatedly had a vivid dream in which there was a great treasure buried under a bridge in Prague, many miles away. Being a poor man, he finally decided to make the long trip to Prague and search for this treasure. When he arrived and went to the bridge, a sentry saw him probing around and demanded to know what he was doing. Simon told the sentry about his dreams and the long journey he had made. The sentry replied, you foolish man, don't you know that you can't believe your dreams? Why, I've dreamed many times about a man in Krakow named Simon who has a a treasure buried under his kitchen stove, but I've never been so dumb as to go to Krakow to search for it. Now get out of here and get going. So Simon returned to his home and looked under his kitchen stove and discovered a treasure which enabled him to live comfortably for the rest of his life. Now, the rabbis always ended the story by saying the treasure was always in Krakow, but the knowledge of it was in Prague. You know, the point of that is sometimes the very thing we're looking for is right under our noses. But we've got to go the long, hard way around to discover it. God's place of blessing for Jacob was in Bethel. But he had to go to Haran for 20 hard years and spend another 10 years in Shechem before he came back to Bethel. And some would say those were all wasted years. Were they? In one sense, they were, in that if Jacob had learned to trust and obey the Lord sooner, those years could have been avoided and shortened. But in another sense, they were necessary in the process of shaping his life. I think we all have, we have all of God's treasures that we need in Christ Jesus, and his written word reveals them to us. They're right here, behind, right under our noses. But how many times does it take us, years sometimes, to go through all kinds of things and then we come right back here and we find out it was all here, all along. He's El Shaddai, He's God Almighty, the all-sufficient one. Sometimes God uses the spiritual slump to make us wake up to the riches that are right under our noses all of the time. And I trust if you've been in a slump, shake it off by responding obediently to God's Word. The answers are right here. I trust that God will encourage us even from this lesson tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you.
that you have given to us, the Word of God, and in your Word we can find the answers to all of our needs. And yet sometimes we're so stubborn and we're so uh, bullheaded that we just think, well, I'll find it out some other way. I'll just go my way and do as I please and hope things work out. But Lord, we know that the answers are right here in your precious word. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here tonight that's in a spiritual slump, they need to wake up and get going with, with you, that Lord, they'll realize that they need to obey God's present commands. They need to fulfill their past commitments. They need to remember that you are uh, compassionate and you've been compassionate. They need to trust you with their present concerns. Lord, I pray that tonight you'll work in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that we can spend this time together. We thank you, Lord, that we can open the Word of God. We thank you that we can come tonight to this table and remember what you did for us. I pray, Lord, your blessing upon our time around the Lord's table this evening. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.